Okay. So, welcome everybody. Yeah. Let's uh, imagine the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in the space in front of us. And then you might say, well, this is just imagination. They're not around. Okay, I can't see them with my eyes. Well, the kind of bodies, uh, you know, the Samboka Kaya body, anyway, we can't see with our eyes. And we didn't have the karma to be born when the Buddha had an Amanakaya body that we could see. But, yeah, the Buddhas, uh, with their omniscient mind, are everywhere all the time in the sense that they know what is happening. And so when we visualize them, we're uh, bringing that awareness into our mind that the Buddhas are always there, ready to help. And it's more a question of us turning our minds towards the Buddhas rather than the Buddhas turning their minds towards us because that they have already done. Okay, so you're in the presence of a whole crowd of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and you're surrounded by all sentient beings and we are surrounded by all sentient beings. Then let's cultivate our motivation. So in, in Ratna Valley, the precious garland, uh, Nagarjuna kept stressing, telling the truth. And uh, last week, His Holiness gave the oral transmission of the first 25 verses of that text. And uh, it came up in those verses, and it will come up many more times in the text. So truth is an interesting thing to contemplate. What does it mean to speak the truth? What does it mean to have skillful speech? And are there points where truth and skillful speech uh, don't meet? Where they seem contradictory? Where if you tell the truth, it's going to be harmful? So it's something to think about. Because Nagarjuna says skillful, skillful speech is always done with a kind attitude, with an attitude of benefiting others. But do we sometimes fudge on the truth with a fake attitude of benefiting others instead of really benefiting them. So this is something to contemplate.
But an attitude of benevolence is always important. And so when we increase that attitude, then it can become great love, great compassion. And when we increase those, they can become bodhicitta. So let's have that thought as our motivation. So if skillful speech is always kind, then what about when we know that if we tell the truth, people are going to be unhappy? Does that mean that we don't tell the truth? Because that could be a fantastic rationalization for hiding all of our misdeeds. Because if we told our misdeeds, other people would be unhappy. And so to have a kind attitude towards them, then we should lie and cover up our misdeeds. Yeah. (laughs) But our mind can justify that, can't it? Yeah. And we can even quote scripture. And then we also say, but the Buddha didn't always tell the truth. He said to some people that a self existed. And he said to other people that there was a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. And he said to other people that phenomena were truly existent. And then when he talked to other people, he said none of those things are true. None of those things exist. So was the Buddha lying? Or was he confused? Well, the answer to that is no. But here you see his real benevolent attitude is that he was looking for the long-term welfare of the people he was teaching. And knowing that if he taught them certain philosophical ideas right now, that would scare them away. Yeah, that would be too much for them to absorb. So his actual intention was to get them to the correct view of emptiness. But he knew to do that, he couldn't teach the correct view of emptiness right away. He had to teach something that was more suitable for their minds. And then as their minds uh, handled that, then he could kind of up the ante, so to speak, and teach them something that closer and closer, uh, more closely um, mirrored the actual correct view. So he wasn't lying. His intention intention all the time was to get them to the correct view. Whereas us, when we uh, fudge with our lying, our intention 
isn't actually to get the people to the correct knowledge of what we've done or the correct knowledge of what happened. Uh, We use that as an excuse so that we don't have to tell (laughs) you know, what went on. Okay, so we have to be really careful with this, what our motivation is. Hmm. It's like the story that uh, you often hear told of the uh, Buddha who was manifesting as the captain of a ship, and there were 500 merchants, and there was one person who was going to kill all of them and abscond with the goods, And the Buddha realized that, so instead of letting the 500 be slaughtered, he killed that one person. And that is said to be a great bodhisattva activity. So we hear that, and we say, oh, well, then, uh, yeah, I can uh, kill all the, you know, I can kill all the people in ISIS, I can kill all the bugs, Uh, you know, anything that is disturbing me, actually I'm killing with compassion because these beings are harming others. Okay. So we we take something we hear and we justify it, we rationalize it for the wrong purpose. Yeah. So it's something to be uh, very careful about Because they say uh, in the Bodhisattva teachings that if you're going to kill, uh, you know, with the motivation of compassion, then you need to be willing to accept the experience of the karma of killing, which is usually rebirth in the hell realms. Okay. So you have to ask yourself, am I willing to accept that result in order to do this action which contradicts the usual code of ethical conduct? Yeah. I want to really check. It's like, no, I'm not willing to experience this. And then we see that we're just rationalizing, justifying. Okay. And that it really takes a lot of courage uh, to, you know, take on the uh, the result of committing a negative action. Uh, but then somebody will say, "Well, actually, the Buddha uh, wasn't reborn in the hell realms because of that, because his compassion was so strong that, you know, he it was a great accumulation of merit." So then we think, well, if I do that too, it's a great accumulation of merit. Yeah. Well, uh, no, because we're not doing it with the same motivation as the Buddha, and we're not willing to accept the pain. We're basically lying to ourselves and lying to others. Okay. So I say this because it comes up. I read this story so often in, you know, Western. I don't read Western Buddhist magazines so often, but when I do, this kind of thing comes up. And, uh, you know, it's people not really understanding the meaning of the story. So we will continue with chapter four on conscientiousness. 
Yeah. And so we're at the, the point um, in the text where Shantideva, you know, he's telling all the faults of not being conscientious. In other words, not caring about ethical conduct. And, all, you know, these are the faults, the results that come from it. And now, then he went into a section about, well, you know, kind of, why aren't I doing anything about it? If these are the faults of my afflictions, how come I'm pampering my afflictions? And then in the last few verses, he's been using the example of soldiers in battle who, um, you know, they're so revved up and full of adrenaline and full of their honor, you know, protecting their honor, improving their power, that uh, even in the middle of a serious battle that they're clearly losing, uh, they will continue to fight. They aren't uh, weakened by the prospect of loss. They will continue fighting the enemy. And even if they win and they're all like brutalized, filled with scars and wounds, they wear, they have those and display them as like ornaments. You know, I was in this battle and, you know, we beat the hell out of these guys. And, uh, so not seeing you know, not afraid of wounds and and things like that. Whereas for the invisible en- enemy uh, are afflictions which are much more dangerous than external enemies. Uh, we cower and we don't seem to have the courage to really counteract them. We're afraid that we're going to completely get destroyed if we don't follow attachment. Yeah, if I don't follow my attachment, I'm going to be miserable. And if I don't follow my anger, people are going to just take advantage of me all over the place. So we get confused, although we think we're seeing things realistically, and uh, we follow the afflictions instead of realizing that these are real, the real enemies. Why are they re- the real enemies? Because other sentient beings, the worst they can do is stop this lifetime. They cannot send us to a lower rebirth. The afflictions are what send us to a lower rebirth. So when we look at you know, the duration of suffering, what other living beings cause us is actually small suffering compared to the result of following the afflictions. So when we think about these things, okay, when we meditate on these verses, try and put your mind uh, in the state of mind of what the verses are saying. Because it's we, it's so easy to look at this and say, uh, but it's very, very impractical. Yeah, our skeptical mind comes up, you know, uh, because well, if if I don't stick up for myself with anger and attack back, I really will get wiped out, and that does nobody else, nobody any good. 
so I need to fight. And everybody in the society tells me I need to fight this and, uh, you know, and kill the enemy. And if I don't do that, I mean, how stupid is that? I'm going to suffer. Other people will suffer. So I should just, you know, follow the battle uh, signal and go off and, and slaughter other people. Yeah? And, and we think, you know, that's what's reasonable. So this whole stuff, what Chantideva is saying about my attachment and anger and laziness and you know, these kind of things being the real problem? No. No. You know, if I lack a little bit of integrity, I'm not laying down dead, getting slaughtered, you know. But if I don't fight my enemy, they're going to come and conquer, and there I'm going to be, you know, a dead corpse. You see what I mean? And so how we always go to seeing the situation from the viewpoint of this life. So we hear the teachings and we say, oh yes, what Shantideva is saying is true. You know, the afflictions are the real enemy. But we believe that when we're sitting here, you know, in the middle of the abbey on a Sunday some, you know, on a spring day, even though it's supposed to still be winter, and uh, and we're well fed, we're with a lovely group of people, oh, we don't have any huge problems, so then it's very easy to say, uh, yeah, of course what Shantideva is saying about the afflictions being the real problem and I need to stand up to them. Of course, that makes total sense. Yeah, but the moment after the teaching, yeah, when somebody tells you, you put that spatula in the wrong place, yeah, then it's like, well, I've got to defend myself. They are accusing me of doing what, I, I mean, the previous cook told me to put the spatula here. Now you come in and you're the cook for the day and you tell me not to put the spatula there. So who am I supposed to follow? You or the previous cook? I'm doing it, just following the directions, exactly what I said. Who are you to come in? I don't care you're senior or not senior. You weren't here when I learned where to put the spatula. And now you're pissed off at me because I'm not putting the spatula where you told me to. And it's not fair. Yeah. Anyway, why does this place change cooks every day? And each cook has a different idea of where to put the spatula. And each one has a different idea of how to cut the carrots. And each one has a different idea of whether to put eggs in baked go goods or not put eggs in baked goods. <laughs> and everybody has a different idea about whether the bread should be half-baked or fully-baked. <laughs> And when to take it out of the oven, and how much to how much to cook the noodles, and you why don't you just choose one person as the cook, and then we all learn how to cut the carrots correctly. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People knew at the Abbey. Is is this your experience? Yeah, it sure is. People who are old at the Abbey. Was this your experience when you were new? Yes. 
No, but now you've become the people who, who, who tell them and get them confused because they're supposed to put the spatula in a different place. Yeah, you're the ones that are no longer confused. You have your own way and you are a senior now. And so who cares what that other senior told them to do? You have control of the spatulas. <laughs> but what constitutes a spatula? Yeah, have you noticed? Different people use that word for two different things. Some use it for a pancake flipper. Some use it for something that you scrape out. So which is the true spatula? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's very interesting how, you know, at that point, the whole idea of defeating our afflictions is out the window for both parties. For the, the juniors who are going, why are you doing this? You know, you're driving me crazy. Okay, so, you know. Uh, they think they're justified. And the seniors who will not back down and say, okay, it's okay to cut the carrots in a different way, you know, they're being just as stubborn and digging in their heels. Yeah. And the whole teaching is like in one ear, out the other, you know, because of carrots and spatulas. Now you know why people fight wars. It's often over something as insignificant as this, or something much more significant, but equally stupid to kill each other about. Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah? Like Shanti Deva's right on. Except. <laughs> except when I want what I want when I want it and then my attachment is good because my attachment brings me happiness and I'm not going to be happy unless I get what I want and you people here are supposed to work for the benefit of others so work for my happiness and let me have what I want. Otherwise, you're being mean. Right? Aren't those people who correct you? They're so mean. And at the same time, they say, Oh, may I develop great compassion for the awakening of all sentient beings. Yeah. And then they turn around and tell you to vacuum the floor. The nerve. Yeah, if they're really working for the benefit of sentient beings, they should go vacuum the floor. Yeah. But they dream up some excuse why not to do that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just a junior, so they should cut me some slack. Yeah. They want somebody to work in the forest. They go work in the forest. Yeah. They did it in their in their thirties, in their forties. I don't care if they're in their sixties and seventies now. They did it before. 
before. They know very well how to do it. They can go out and do it. But I'm just in my 20s and 30s with my delicate body, and I cannot lift a log. It's just too hard. And besides, I don't want to go out there. There's bugs out there. And... And it gets too hot, and I sweat, and I don't want to do that, and I get dirty. And then I wear these grungy clothes, you know. So let let those other, I mean, they're called old fogies for a reason. <laughs> so they're, yeah, they can go out and, and do that work, you know. But not me. I'm, I'm delicate. I went to college. <laughs> so I don't have to. Uh, work in the forest. College graduates don't work in the forest, you know. And I have a good education, yeah, before I came to this joint. <laughs> I had a good job. I earned lots of money, you know. I don't have to go work in the forest. Get dainty little paws dirty. <laughs> So, um, you know, the teachings are they're great when we're in the hall, you know, but outside the hall, yeah, our mind uh, comes up with all sorts of things. I just wrote a, a letter to my editor, uh, you know, for volume seven, because... Uh, She's changing uh, how to capitalize some terms and how to italicize some terms. And the way she's doing it makes no sense. So I said, if you capitalize this term and this phrase, then we shouldn't capitalize the other terms there. And, you know, gave her a whole logical argument about which things we should capitalize and which we should italicize and how it doesn't make any sense to do it the way she says. But I didn't say the way she says, because I was trying to be polite. And, uh, and But then at the bottom of it, I said, maybe I should stick using my analytical abilities to refute the uh, ideas of the lower tenant systems instead. You know, I was making fun of myself because I was using uh, my analytical abilities to, to make my case about capitalization and italicization because I know that all the people who do the proofreading are going to mark it up. Because one thinks it should be italicized and the other doesn't. Don't get me into that. And when the people who proofread things with the commas, oh, God. It's enough, it's enough to make you not want to write anything. Where you put commas, they take commas away. Where you don't put commas, they put commas away. Yeah, they change colons to semicolons. Yeah, they change semicolons to periods. Yeah, you want them to tell you if the sentence makes sense, but they don't do that. They just look at where they put the, the commas. Oh, why am I getting so tense thinking about that? <laughs> Yeah, Shanti Deva said, <laughs> if there's something you can do about it, do it. If there's not something you can do about it, relax. So can I do something about how other people proofread my stuff? I better stick to teaching. It's easier. 
Oh yes, yes. Oh, that's a, that's another thing. We do uh, we do have Shravasti Abbey Publishing. We've self-published a number of things with our logo on it and our name on it. Then the fun thing to do is to figure out what the next thing to publish is. Because there's so many things to translate. And so many of them. And people from here are sending you their half-baked translations. And you feel like you should correct it. Because after all, don't we need a new translation of the 11th century ordination rite? Or, well, maybe it was the 16th century ordination rite. So we can compare it to the modern day ordination rite. And uh, this is going to take us a long time to do, so you people who need a good English translation are just going to have to wait because we're comparing these documents. Because one has this word and one has that word. Yeah. And then somebody else sends us something else. And maybe, you know, we've had these teachings. Maybe we should add them in as an appendix to something we've already published. And if we're going to do that, why don't we just retranslate what we've already published? Yeah? And let's not make an, an appendix. Let's put it into what's already there, you know, and retranslate the whole thing. And now it'll all be complete. But then, if we put that in, there's some other teaching that we've got over there. Do we put that in this book, or do we make it a separate publication? Because if we put it in this book that we're retranslating, even though it was that big to start with, it's now going to become this big. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, that's what happens when you start your own publishing company. I don't see anybody having eyes of sympathy for me. <laughs> You're all looking at me like, so what? Just give me the translation when I want it. <laughs> okay. Let's go on. So let's, we'll start with 39. So remember, really... Put your mind into thinking like, like Shanti Deva is explaining. Don't have your first reaction be, but this doesn't make sense and it's impractical and what a stupid analogy. And really, he should have put a period here <laughs> and put a comma there. Okay. If even scars inflicted by meaningless enemies are worn upon the body like ornaments, then why is suffering a cause of harm to me while impeccably striving to fulfill the great purpose? So people in ridiculous conflicts against meaningless enemies, in wars, who are you fighting? People that you do not know. Why are you killing people you don't know? Because huh? 
because some guy, one of those other old fogies, is telling you to. And of course, now your honor depends on it, and you can have the opportunity to be a martyr. Isn't that what you always wanted to do? Anyway, yeah, scars inflicted by meaningless enemies, people who you don't know, who have not harmed you directly, who are going to die anyway because they're sentient beings. Yeah. But the scars you get from battling with them are worn on your body like ornaments. Think about that. Does that make any sense at all? I mean, the, this what I'm proposing is, you know, they'll, they'll hang me for treason or something. Because if people believe this, nobody would, would sign up to go to war. Well, maybe a few people would. But, you know, so, but you just think about it. Think about that mentality and how much we will kill for honor. Yeah. How much our, when our honor is threatened, we will do anything to preserve it. And yet, what is our honor? You know, why do we commit non-virtue to protect our honor? Yeah. So you got to ask that, what is it, the Hatfields and the McCoys? Okay. So it, it, this is something that has run throughout history. You know, if you insult me, yeah, that's worse in many cases than harming my body. Okay? So this is the attitude of worldly people. So if they will die in those situations and commit non-virtue in those situations, then me, who, uh, you know, I'm trying to work for something that's virtuous, that's going to have a long-term beneficial result for sentient beings, and yet I'm so weak in doing it. You know, the real enemies, I, I'm too, too weak or too lazy to confront them. I'm happy just to sit and let my afflictions you know, eat up the garden of virtue while I watch. Does that make any sense? If worldly people are willing to send themselves to the lower realms to protect their honor and kill people who are going to die enemy anyway, who they don't even know, then why can't I exert myself to, to combat the real enemy and accomplish something that's actually going to be good for the world. Yeah. So when you think about that, really, you know, sit with that for a while and try and shift your mind instead of, you know, kind of picking holes in the argument. See that it's actually quite a good argument and shift your mind in that direction. 
Okay. Now, does that mean that you should stop eating and be an ascetic and, you know, beat yourself up every time you leave a piece of chocolate in your coat pocket accidentally on purpose? <laughs> you know, does that mean that that's what you should do? No, that's not saying what you should do. Yeah, that's just more ego stuff. But it is saying, you know, ask myself, why, why do I lose my courage to just restrain myself from non-virtue? Why do I lose my courage to put that piece of tape right here? Or lose my courage to say, thank you, I'll go get the vacuum cleaner. Okay, verse 40. If fishermen, hunters, and farmers, thinking merely of their own livelihood, endure the sufferings of heat and cold, why am I not patient for the sake of the world's joy? Okay, fishermen, hunters, farmers, people who are trying to get enough to eat for themselves and their families, you know, they'll endure the, the, the cold, yeah, do really difficult work, even commit non-virtue. You know, they'll go out and work in the heat. They'll work when they're absolutely exhausted. And they're doing it just for this life's livelihood. So when I'm say, anyway, that I'm working for the world's joy, how come I have no patience to go under through, to undergo even small sufferings for the benefit of generating bodhicitta? Yeah. So this is a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Yeah. Why am I so unwilling to to have even a tiny bit of suffering or to lose what I consider to be an inch of my status or to give up being right, yeah, for the sake of creating virtue and progressing along the path to full awakening. Okay, so these are all things really, they're so good to meditate on, to really read the verse and put your mind in it and think about that. Yeah. And why am I cowardly about bringing up things that need to be brought up? You know, when something is happening that is, shouldn't be happening, in, you know, you're working in an organization or in a monastery or in a country, and, you know, there's, there's corruption, there's, you know, stuff going on that is harmful. Why are we so hesitant to bring it up? Again, because we're afraid people won't like us. So then we let the 
what is harmful in the organization continue happening to save our own skin. And this is what's happening politically. Yeah? Instead of people thinking about what's good for the country, thinking about how am I going to keep my job? And who cares? If it entails lying, I'll lie. Because everybody else is doing it. And besides, it might even be true. You know, when you hear a lie long enough, you begin to believe it. Yeah. So, maybe Trump will be inaugurated as the 19th president today. (laughs) That's what QAnon said. Okay, verse 41. When I promise to liberate all living beings who dwell in the ten directions as far as the ends of space, and I promise to liberate them from their disturbing conceptions, I myself have not yet freed, I am not, I myself was not yet freed from mine. So I made this commitment, yeah, In the previous chapter, I took the bodhisattva vow. Why didn't they warn me at the beginning of that chapter? Well, they told us all the benefits of doing it, so we followed that. And now we're going, I promise to liberate all these sentient beings who live as throughout the infinite universe. So when you look at those stars, yeah, that probably have planets on them, and there's gazillions of living beings out there. And it, they don't need water on every place to have life. You know, the kind of bodies sentient beings have is created by their karma. Yeah, so there, it, you know, there could be living beings on Mars. And we just don't see them as beyond our, our capability. Or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of space out there when you look. And you think, you think of how many years it took the light from one planet out there to get for you to see it, so that you're actually, you're seeing the past. When you see the stars, you're seeing what existed, you know, millions of years ago. Because it takes that long for the light to get to us, right? And so there's lots of other beings out there. And I promise to liberate all of them. And they've all been my my mother in previous lives and my father. And they've helped me and taken care of me. And Shanti Deva's arguments made perfect sense to me in chapter one, two, and three. And I made that commitment. And now... I have cold feet. Okay, what in the world did I commit to? Yeah, I haven't even eliminated my own afflictions, and yet I've promised to liberate other living beings from their afflictions. And when I tell them that they're acting out of afflictions and they should just cut it out and get rid of their anger and their attachment and their competition, They don't listen to me. 
even though I know what's best for them, they don't listen. Okay? So, verse 42. Thus, unaware of even my own capacity that I'm still overwhelmed by affliction, was it not somewhat crazy to have spoken like that? Somewhat crazy? I was out of my mind. But then Shantideva says, Yet as this is so, I must never withdraw from vanquishing my disturbing conceptions. So even though you made a promise that was outside of your capacity, because it really made sense to you at that time, and it felt like the right thing to do, because it is the right thing to do, when you sit back and say, but my mind is still overwhelmed by afflictions, how can I help anybody else? Then you think, well, maybe this whole ordeal is fruitless, and I just need to give back my promise to liberate sentient beings because, you know, it's too much. It's too much. I said it in a fit of idealistic inspiration. (laughs) Yeah? And my cynicism is coming back, and, you know, I just, I can't do it. And Shantideva is saying, sorry, you made a virtuous commitment. You can't give it up. If you give it up, you're harming yourself and you're harming all the other living beings. So yes, it may have been unrealistic at that time, but you can practice now, subdue your afflictions, and gradually what you promised before will become a very realistic promise that you will be able to keep and actualize. So don't give up hope and throw the Buddha away with the bathwater. Yeah, hang in there, you know, and practice gradually, and then the things that were hard for you to you know, afflictions that at the beginning were initially very hard for you to overcome, gradually it will get easier and easier to catch them. Yeah, things you didn't understand. Yeah, you read Nagarjuna's Karikas and it's like, what is he talking about? There's no existence, no non-existence, not both and not neither. Huh? Yeah, show things that you don't understand. Gradually, with time, you'll be able to understand and they'll become quite meaningful to you. Yeah, so don't give up. Mm -hmm. So yet, as this is so, I must never withdraw from vanquishing my disturbing conceptions. 43. And to do this will be my sole obsession, holding a strong grudge against my afflictions, not against other sending beings, but against my afflictions. Oh, here you are, arrogance again. Yeah, popping up and 
telling you know, telling me that I'm better than other people. So, uh, you know, yeah. I'm holding a grudge against you, arrogance, because when you pop up and do that, you make me do things that are stupid, that are harmful to myself and others. Okay. So that will be my sole obsession. Okay. So obsession doesn't mean like like this. But to the extent that when we want something, we are obsessed with it, then with that same intensity, we should, you know, uh, combat the afflictions and apply the antidotes to the afflictions. Yeah. Of course, we to do this, we have to learn how to keep our own mind in balance. Okay? Because sometimes we will read these verses and we'll say, I am a crusader going to the Holy Land to slash anger and slash resentment and slash non-integrity and slash arrogance. You know, and I'm going to push myself. I'm never going to give up. So even though I'm exhausted and all the metal that's on my on me and on my horse is all... And didn't, didn't they wear metal in the Crusades? Metal armor? I think they did. You know, now even though it's all rusty and I can barely move, I'm never giving up. It, it's not that idea, attitude. You can't practice Dharma with that attitude, okay? So you have to practice it with an attitude of, I've got to keep myself balanced. I'm not a Buddha yet. So I've got to see what I'm capable of doing and do that. Sometimes nudge myself a little bit to do a little bit more, but not nudge myself so much that I become crazy with pushing myself, you know, and speaking harshly to myself and telling myself what a lousy practitioner I am, you know, that I get long up to here or even higher, yeah? So when you get yourself all stressed out, that doesn't help. So we have to realize that we're sentient beings. We do what we're capable of doing. And by doing that, then we can slowly start to do more. Notice the word slowly. We start to do a little bit more. We don't do this thing of, you know, I'm going to be Buddha by next Tuesday. Okay, that's not going to work. I remember Lama Yeshe, whenever somebody would go on one of these, you know, trips of, of being ascetic about something or another, you know, Lama would just, you know, he would really kind of tear into that person. So there was one monk who, because um, when we first lived at Gopan, we were living and I think it was, I was told it was the astrologer's old house. I don't know what the whole Copan was before they built it, but it was a brick building, so really cold, 
bricks. I don't think it, it's still there anymore. But um, and and so this one monk, you know, he was doing the kind of ascetic trip. So he had just a a thin um, mat made out of grass because those are the kind of mats you could get in in, in Nepal at that time on the, on the cold brick, and he was sleeping on that. Yeah. And Lama, every once in a while, would walk and check out our rooms, and, and he looked at that. He called him, yeah, you think you're Milarepa? <laughs> you're sleeping on that thing? Go get yourself a mattress, you know. Of course, the mattresses, you know, were about this thick and made of foam, but it was a lot better. You didn't feel the cold from the brick underneath you when you slept on that, Okay. But he would really go into people when, who, who uh, did ascetic trips. Yeah, I, I wasn't one of them. <laughs> Although sometimes, sometimes, um, there were times when, you know, one of the lamas would say something in a teaching, oh, we need this kind of paper for, for class tomorrow. And then I remember staying up really, really late with different people writing out phonetics or, you know, typing something and then having to go. And they had an old mimeograph machine. Forget computers and printers, you know. And even the mimeograph machines that they had in schools. This was one of the really old kind. Okay. And... And it would usually break in between. Um, yeah, but I remember doing that lots of times because they needed something. Yeah. But um, that was done with a very happy mind, actually. You know, our teacher wanted it, so yeah, I was happy to, to do what I could. But when sentient beings want something, don't ask me to do it. You know, I think teachers all have so much devotion. But other sentient beings? But then who do your teachers care the most about? All those other sentient beings. But we forget that. Yeah. So we forget that if we actually want to help our teachers, we need to be kind to sentient beings. And instead, we think that we should just shower our teachers with, you know, jewels and whatever, you know, jewels and swimming pools. And, you know, what are you going to do with a bunch of jewels in a swimming pool? So, 43. So, to do this will be my sole obsession holding a strong grudge against those afflictions. I shall meet them in battle. Okay, now somebody's going to say, if, I, if I'm holding a strong grudge against my afflictions, isn't that having, isn't that ego too? You know, I'm going to destroy my afflictions. So uh, in case you're asking that, Shantideva says, Yet disturbing conceptions such as these destroy disturbing conceptions and for the time being are not to be abandoned. So sometimes, you know, when you have to activate yourself to oppose the afflictions, 
it you're you are activating another aspect of self-grasping. Okay, because you get this strong feeling of, I am not going to get in, give into this affliction. Okay, so then uh, what Shanti Deva is saying is, you know, that yes, that's a disturbing conception, but for the time being, using it to overcome your afflictions is good and it works. And so, don't abandon it. Okay, I'll give you another example. When you study uh, debate in in the monasteries, yeah, if uh, you know, usually belittling somebody and making fun of them and telling them they're stupid is not something that you do. Okay, but. When somebody in the class is getting very puffed up about themselves, about their debating ability or how smart they are, often the teacher will cut them down like this, and even their classmates will ridicule them. Okay? So you can say, oh, well, speaking like that, that's done out, that's an affliction, isn't it? You're ridiculing people. You're cutting them down. But, you know, for the time being, speaking like that is beneficial for the person that they're speaking to. Okay? So I think in the, in the teacher's case, the teacher probably isn't angry. But they have to do that to get, to get the disciple to kind of wake up and see, oh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of acting like a big know-it-all, and that's not helpful to my practice. So it's the same thing here when we deal with our own afflictions. If we look and we say, anger, you've messed up my life so much, you know, and I'm not going to let you have have your way, yeah, that arising of of, uh, self-grasping in your mind is good because it's helping you overcome it's not like it's virtuous, but it's it's useful at that time because it's helping you overcome something that is a stronger affliction. Okay, does that make some sense to you? Okay. So it would be better for me to be burned, to have my head cut off and to be killed, rather than ever bowing down to those ever-present disturbing conceptions. Now, this is a verse you'd go, look, my mother would not agree with that. (laughs) Okay? This is too extreme. Yeah? If my mother read that verse and she thought that I would let myself be burned or my head cut off rather than opposing a little bit of anger or a little bit of attachment, my mother would not approve. Yeah? My father would not approve. Yeah? Actually, I don't approve either. I don't want to have my head cut off. I don't want to get burned. Okay, so there's our mind picking faults with with the argument. Okay, instead, try and put your mind into the situation like this, you know, and really see the defects of the afflictions and how they send us to the lower realms. 
and then think, you know, rather than follow them, it would be better to get burned or have my head cut off. Yeah. Because that, the least, the most that would do is cause some pain this life or end this life. It would not send me to the lower realms. Okay. So you think, you know, you really put your mind into that and think like this. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean you go to an extreme and even though you're incapable of uh, determining where your rebirth is going to be, you go out and sacrifice your body for the sake of an ant. Okay? It doesn't mean you do that. The, the argument, as it's used here, is done to fortify our mind and make our mind strong. But in actual situations, we have to assess what to do according to our capability at that particular time. Okay? And so if you haven't reached a certain state of the, of the bodhisattva path, then you're not allowed to give your body away. Okay, it's against the bodhisattva precept because it's more valuable for sentient beings to keep yourself alive so you can practice the bodhisattva path than to sacrifice your life for something that's not very important. Okay, that's in that situation. In the situation of trying to strengthen our mind so that we will oppose our afflictions, then thinking like this is very, very helpful. Yeah. And because you think, okay, you know, I, I am willing to go through some difficulty and, and in fact to overcome these afflictions because that's what I need to do because these afflictions are harming me. So here, you know, Don't get into that when it comes to, you know, are you going to have another cookie or not? Look at the afflictions when you want to go out and you want to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Look at the afflictions that are going to take you really away from the Dharma. Okay. And, And use this kind of thing of, you know, it would be better for me you know, if I get burned or get my head cut off, rather than, you know, lose my precepts by going and, you know, being infatuated over somebody else's body, which is actually a bunch of vegetable goo and nothing much to be attached to. Okay? So you use this in a way to, to give yourself some courage in the practice. You know? And, like I said, you use it against things that are really detrimental. You know, if you have a very strong habit of of, um, harsh speech towards other people, and you're you're kind of well-known wherever you go for somebody who doesn't, you know, who speaks harshly and blames others, and, you know, then use this argument to, to help yourself overcome uh, that habit of harsh speech that is so damaging. Okay. Yeah.
So again, don't apply it for the the big afflictions. Yeah. And at the beginning, don't worry so much about, you know, that piece of candy in your pocket. Although, if you seem to have a piece of candy in your pocket every week that you've accidentally forgotten, then remember to take it out. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's so interesting at Posada. We often confess these small things, you know, that are, are not big, big deals, but some of the things that are bigger deals we don't confess. Yeah. Like, I got really mad and shouted at somebody. Mm, I want to confess that. Well, why not? People heard you. <laughs> You're not saying anything new. You might as well own it. Yeah. Okay. Or I looked at Vogue magazine. <laughs> God. Um, you know, and I was envisioning wearing all those nice fancy clothes in Vogue. You know, nobody confesses that. Of course, we don't have any subscriptions to Vogue magazine, thank goodness. Although I'm waiting for Vogue to put our robes in the magazine someday. <laughs> because we do see women adopting our hairdo. Yeah? Lots of people. Yeah. And we invented it. Well, the Buddha invented it. We don't get any credit. They copy our hairdo. Also, when I was in Louisiana, uh, two ladies stopped me and said, hey, that's exactly what I saw in the show, in some kind of uh, sewing show. <laughs> yeah, and she said, did you do it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and I've had people say, you know, it doesn't look good on anybody, but you, that hairdo looks great on you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it would be better for me to be burned, have my hair cut off, and to be killed, rather than ever bowing down to those ever-present disturbing conceptions. Common enemies, okay, ordinary people, when expelled from one country, simply retire and settle down in another though when their strength is recovered, they then return. However, the way of this enemy, my disturbing conceptions, is not similar in this respect. So regular en enemies, you know, you win the battle and they flee somewhere else, and then after time they recollect, and if their ideology holds, they recollect, the movement grows stronger, and they come back and attack again. But enemies such as our afflictions, once they're overcome by the wisdom directly realizing emptiness, they can't come back. They're completely abolished. Yeah, There's no way uh, that they will ever torment us again. So actually, again, when you think about it, yeah, it makes much more sense to vanquish 
these long-term enemies in our mind, and it makes very little sense to kill other sentient beings. 46. Deluded, disturbing conceptions, when forsaken by the eye of wisdom and dispelled from my mind, where will you go? Okay, so here is where it's useful to use your mother's tone of voice when you're scolding your afflictions or your father's, whoever was in your family who disciplined, you know. You just deluded, disturbing conceptions when for the sake of uh, forsaken by the eye of wisdom and dispelled from my mind. Where will you go when I kick you out of this house? Where are you going to be? <laughs> okay. So, you, you know, you talk to your afflictions like that. And it's true. Where are they going to go? When you kick them out, where, where are your afflictions going? Yeah? Are they running down <laughs> the country lane and then making a left or a right at Spring Valley Road? Yeah? Where are they going to take refuge? Are they going to go hide in the, in the um, house that fell down? around the corner? Yeah. Where are your afflictions going to go? Where will you dwell in order to be able to injure me later again? They, they can't go anywhere. They completely disappear. But, weak-minded, I have been reduced to making no effort. But always just wanting my happiness right now I don't make any effort to do anything about my afflictions. I just, you know, I let them be. Most of the time I don't even notice them. Yeah. And how stupid it was for me to take that bodhisattva vow and promise to get rid of my afflictions. Who in their right mind would do that? Oh, well, the Buddha... Nagarjuna, Shantideva, <laughs> Buddha Palita, Baba Viveka, Shantarakshita, uh, the, the, the 17 great Nalanda masters, they all took that vow. Are they all crazy? Uh, are the people that I bow to with respect, were they all crazy? I mean, I pray to be born in Amitabha Buddhist land. Was he crazy for making his uh, great resolves? Okay. So you see, no, these people were not crazy. They were once like us, and they practiced the path, and they weren't weak-minded. Okay, let's stop here, see if there's questions. I know there's only two more verses, but uh, the next verse, there's a little bit of explanation for, so I'll save it. Yeah. This relates to a topic from two weeks ago, but it still applies to today's topic, I think. So we heard the joke two weeks ago that Jews invented guilt and then Catholics um, perfected it. Uh That's funny. 
And then you follow that with the statement that Catholics hate the Jews. And I was sort of struck by a thunderbolt because, well, I'll give you two things that are very hopeful about that whole topic, which has a lot of history, which we won't debate right now. <laughs> but um, in 1965, during the Second Vatican Council, um, that called for Catholics and Jewish people to join in biblical and theological inquiry and friendly discussions. And then this uh, institute was developed right that year at St. Joseph's College. And it's called the Institute, um, what is it called? Let's see. I can't find the name right now. Anyway, its purpose is to, and it's still going, since 65, and the purpose is to increase knowledge and deepen understanding that has been powerfully reiterated by Pope Francis, who has emphasized the importance of our mutual desire to know one another better, to listen to each other, and to build bonds of true fraternity. So I thought that was very hopeful. And then in my own experience, and this is why I was so shocked by that statement, um, <laughs> you know, my mom went, she took us to church every Sunday because we lived a block away and she was the organist. On holidays, we looked for churches to go to. So I went to church all over central Alberta and British Columbia, even Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I never, ever heard this idea that Catholics hated Jews. Never. Mm -hmm. And I took theological courses in universities so that maybe if the Catholic school board would give me a job, I might qualify. But, you know, I was just so surprised. Uh -huh. But, of course, like other um, discrimination, people don't say out front, I, am, I hate these people or I discriminate against these people. For example, in World War II, there's a lot of doubt about uh, the Pope. I forget which Pope who was during World War II. Anyway, there's uh, people calling for the release of documents from his time saying that he could have done much more to save the Jews and other people from uh, the Holocaust. Yeah. And then historically, too. Yeah. So, I mean, the Inquisition, wiping out Jews, so many things throughout history. I mean, 4,000 years of them trying to kill us. So uh, I'm sure you can, you know... Uh, look it up on Google. I'm not, so I'm, I'm glad you never encountered it. I'm not debating the history. There's uh, a lot of mistake there. Yeah. But just to see, I didn't know about this institute before, and it's still uh, going. The institute's very good. Yeah. And that it isn't, um, yeah, it was just not a view that was ever propagated in my own experience. Mm -hmm. And lots of other things were, like everyone else except for the Catholics are going to hell. And I could never buy that one as a kid. Yeah, well, that included the Jews, of course. <laughs> I'll stop now. I mean, the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who can buy that, that everybody who doesn't believe as you do goes to hell? But anyway, yeah. Many conspiracy theories in this world. How would you define weak-minded? Like... You know, I know I'm doing this out of attachment. And 
I know I I know I have a precept to not drink, but I'm at my family's dinner and everybody wants me to drink. They're really pushing me to drink. They are pushing me to drink. They're going to think Buddhism is really prudy, you know, it's, uh, that I'm being a prude as a Buddhist if I don't drink. So, you know, might as well drink and make them happy. Or, you know, I, I'm out you know, on a business thing, and I'm tired, and I'm exhausted, and I just met this really wonderful-looking person who's kind of flirting with me, and I know I have a precept, and, you know, I have a family and kids, but, you know, I'm exhausted. I might as well. This will make me feel much better. Okay? So that that kind of thing where we just, uh, we don't uh, bother we just say, okay, there's an affliction, uh, so what? It makes me feel good now. How do you discern which affliction is worse than another when one needs to be used to destroy another? How do you view relative importance? Well, you look in your own life, and what affliction causes you the most problems? Don't start with the one of which one am I going to use to oppose it. But, you know... What causes you the most problems? Are, are you somebody who, who quarrels with people a lot? You know, are you somebody who's always chasing after some extra money or a, extra this or this or that? You know, is your speech truthful? Or do, or do you, you know, habitually kind of just slightly alter something to get what you want? Yeah. Do you do you blame people? Do you kick your dog when you've had a hard day at work? You know, look in your life at at what uh, what problems you have, and and then look at and ask yourself what are the afflictions that lay behind those problems, and then you know you, when you see the biggest problems you have, then. You try and find the afflictions that are motivating that. How do you approach learning which afflictions result in poor rebirth? Are the five precepts sufficient? Um, use the um, the ten non-virtues. That's the usual list to see, uh, you know, what results in lower rebirth. If you look at the um, at the five precepts, they are a wonderful first step in uh, abandoning the ten non-virtues. Okay, so they they are definitely a good step. Um, but then you also want to look out for all ten virtu- non-virtues as well. Seems like we are working on many afflictions at the same time. How do we measure progress and trust the path? Progress and Path. Trust the past. Path. How do you measure progress? Are you are you calmer? Are you happier? Do you get along better with other people? Yeah. Ask the people who know you well. Yeah. And and they will often tell you if you've changed. Okay. Um, but you can also tell just by your your own feeling, you know, if you're not as angry as you used to be, well, 
your, your practice is working. Okay, well, was there a second part to that question? What was it? Okay. Yeah. And if you don't feel as guilty, if you don't feel as torn and confused in your mind, yeah, then, then you know, you're developing an ability to deal with your afflictions. <laughs> 